Well, good morning. My name's Beth Tiefel, and um, I gave a lecture last fall. And as I recall, I told you all about how my son coached me to do that. He didn't coach me for this, although um, I have had a tendency to chide him about procrastination, about you, big projects, you need to get on it, get on it. So I will confess, Monday I was still typing, and he's in there going, you don't have enough words yet, Mom. <laughs> Keep going. You're procrastinating. So it's kind of nice to be encouraged by your children. But I'm happy to be here again with you this morning. So let's pray before we begin. <clears throat> Father, I am happy to be here with this group of women this morning. Thank you for the beautiful sunshine you've given us just a rays of encouragement. And I pray that's what we have here this morning as we dig into your word and hear what you have to say to us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So can you believe we only have two more weeks? Next week, Lesson 18, and then the brunch is just moved along very, very quickly. Seems like we just started last fall. And just, we have moved right along in this text of Acts. So last week, I wasn't with you all, as my husband and I were enjoying the warm weather of Florida and the sunshine and resting and relaxing. And yes, just so you know, it was wonderful. It was 70s every day, and it was great. Although we came home to snow, but that's the payback, I guess, of being away for a while. And even though I wasn't here, please believe me that my mind was on this text of Acts and of Paul. I thought of the storyline that we've covered thus far with Paul and all the attributes of God that we've seen in studying Acts and the spread of the gospel message. We've talked about God's sovereignty, how he's all-knowing, all-powerful, his grace and mercy displayed. And I thought about how beautifully God has orchestrated every detail in Paul's life and gave him a period of rest, not one that he would have necessarily chosen for himself or one that we might not have seen as rest, but the two years in Caesarea could be called rest. But let's look a bit at, at this a bit before we embark on this perilous journey we're going to see. So I produced a timeline of Paul, kind of where he's been, what we've seen thus far. So you can see that we saw him on the, in his conversion on the road to Damascus. And it reads that from Damascus he went to Arabia for a period of time, then he comes back to Damascus. But there his life's threatened by the Jews, so they actually let him down in a basket over the city wall to rescue him. So then he goes to Jerusalem, but remember the disciples were all afraid of him because he had tormented the new church. But good old Barnabas befriended him, right? But there again, the Hellenist Jews threaten, threaten him with death. So then he has to escape to Tarsus for eight years. So when Barnabas went to Antioch to start the church there, in Acts 11, he went and got Paul, remember, to help him serve and teach. 
and they're there for a period of time, and then they both go back to Jerusalem with relief funds for the church there. So then Paul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey. We saw that in Acts 13 and 14. And they're gone for approximately 18 months. Remember, they faced opposition from the Jews, and Paul was actually stoned and left for dead in Lystra. Then again, they go back to Jerusalem for the council concerning the Jews and the Gentiles. Remember the issue with circumcision and, and all of that. So then he starts on his second missionary journey with Silas this time. He's gone approximately two and a half years. We saw that in Acts 16 through 18. And we remember he was beaten with rods and put into prison in Philippi. And there was constant opposition from the Jews during this trip also. And then he has a third missionary journey. That's Acts 18 through 21. And this time he's gone for approximately five years. And it was during this time that Paul writes 1 and 2 Corinthians and the book of Romans. So before we ever get to this journey we're about to go on, this is what he wrote of his life in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rocks. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul carried the weight on himself for the growth and success of all the church plants. And if you read his letters, you can see his love, his teaching, and shepherding he gave to these new flocks. So then upon his arrival back in Jerusalem, remember we just read, he was arrested and sent to Caesarea for safety, where he stayed in Herod's Praetorium for two years. And Acts 24, 23 states that Felix gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody but have some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Now Paul was in captivity, but he resided at the governor's quarters with the freedom of his friends to come and go. At this point in time, it's estimated Paul would have been somewhere between 50 to 55 years, of, years old, and having survived all the things that he had recorded in 2 Corinthians. We know Paul had had many assurances from his Lord of his mission and purpose of events to come. But what a gift of rest and recuperation he's given before more trials of endurance and courage are to happen. To be attended to and his needs met by fellow believers and brothers in Christ. I'm sure that Paul's body bore many battle scars from his missionary trips. And he needed time to reflect on his Lord and all that had gone on in the past few years. 
before entering this new phase of life. Once again, we see the sovereignty of our Lord to provide exactly what Paul needed at the right time. As our great God knew everything that was was going to occur. And the same is true with us. While we may not bear physical battle scars, as other Christians around the world may, may have, we may be carrying emotional scars that are invisible to the eye, but they hurt nonetheless. And our great God knows exactly what we need in the time we need it, and he provides. We only need to seek him and rest in him and his finished work on the cross. So now let's get to this chapter 27 and begin the treacherous journey to Rome with Paul. 27 reads, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So here we see once again the author Luke including himself on the journey when he says we. And verse 2 also tells us that Aristarchus accompanied them as well. So how is it that Luke and Aristarchus were allowed to accompany the prisoner Paul? It's not clear, although one explanation was that this was a public sailing vessel and they could have paid their own way. Or another explanation is that they were regarded as Paul's slaves, which actually gave Paul added authority or privilege as a Roman citizen. And Paul did refer to Aristarchus as his fellow prisoner in the book of Colossians. Now, an Augustan cohort, or sometimes it's referred to as an imperial regiment, were centurions who acted as liaisons between the emperor and the provinces, and they were also tasked with transporting high-profile prisoners. Once again, we see the providence of God in verse 3 when it says, And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for upon arriving in Sidon. Now, this could have just been kind treatment because Paul was a Roman citizen, but I like to think of it as God's provision to Paul. Again, what a treat for Paul to see his friends one last time and to receive encouragement and brotherly love from them. So we go on in verse 4 and 5, and it says, I'm putting out to sea. From there we sailed across under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. Note they embarked on a ship that was only going to sail along the ports, along the coastline. It wasn't capable of making the entire voyage to Rome. And the commentaries note that Luke's account here in Acts is most accurate and must have been written by an eyewitness as there could be no other explanation for such detail. So let's look at the map. There was a map in your book, but let's look at this map. 
and I'll see if my magic pointer works. There it is. If you can see, if you see over here, Caesarea is where they left from. I can't get my pointer there. And they went up to Sidon, and they had to go along the coastline. And it said they had to go the lee of Cyprus, which meant the north. They couldn't go straight across because of the winds. So they had to go up and over um, to get there. And it says the distance from Caesarea to Sidon is 67 land miles. And it was estimated it would take a day to sail that distance if they had a good wind. And then Luke records from Sidon, the winds were against them. So that's why they had to go to the east and then up north of Cyrus to continue west to Myra. And it was believed it took nine days to get from Sidon over to Myra. Now Myra was a major port in the Eastern Empire and it lay directly north of Alexandria, Egypt. So right to the south of that would have been Alexandria. So an Egyptian ship sailing for Rome would have to sail north to Myra at this time of year because it was impossible to sail directly northwest to Rome because of those same prevailing winds that drove Paul's ship from Caesarea to Myra. The winds are coming from the northeast. So in verse 6 it says, There in Myra the centurion found a ship from Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Now this was probably a grain ship, which may have looked like the one, this one, pictured. These were actually good-sized ships which could, which could hold up to 600 people. So this was the type of ship that could sail all the way across the Mediterranean. And we continue in verse 7 and 8. We sold, sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off of Salmona. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassie. So looking back at the map, we see they left Myra, and they had to kind of come down and then go under the island of Crete. There again, because that's where the, way, the winds were kind of driving them. The distance from Myra to Nidus is a land distance of about 130 miles, and it should have been covered in a single day. However, the text tells us again that the winds were against them, so it took several days. It also says they could go no farther west due to the winds, for the, so they sailed southwest towards Crete. Mariners have determined that due to the winds in this time of year, this was the only possible course of travel available to them. And having arrived at Simona, on the eastern edge of Crete, they ran along the southern coast using the island as a shelter from the wind. And Luke says that with difficulty, they reached the harbor of Fair Havens. Remember in your lesson, you had to list all these phrases that describe this journey, great difficulty, winds. And when you did that, didn't it make you wonder why they even attempted this journey at this point in time? Why they didn't wait for spring? But they didn't. They went on this journey, didn't they? 
So we read, read on in verses 9 through 12. It said, since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the past, the fast was already over. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So as we see in verse 9, much time had passed because it evidently had taken much longer to get to Crete than they had imagined. And the time for sailing was passing due to the approach of winter and the storms. And as we noted in that passage in um, 2 Corinthians, Paul had been involved with shipwrecks. He'd been on many voyages. He was an experienced sailor. So that's why he felt he could give advice to stay put to avoid loss of ship and lives. But we see Paul's advice wasn't heeded. He was a prisoner, right? Wasn't heeded by the centurion or the ship's owner. It was considered inconsequential. So then we might ask, why would they decide to face possible danger rather than take shelter right where they were? Well, the centurion had a duty to deliver the prisoners, and he also had a duty to deliver the grain that was carried on this ship to Rome. As well as the ship's owners had a vested interest to deliver the grain this late in the season. Roman historians noted that during this era, the city of Rome faced shortages of food during the winter months. So the emperor offered substantial bonuses to ship owners to deliver grain late in the season. And obviously by human reasoning, did you note those words, on the chance that somehow the centurion, the pilot, and the ship's owners thought they could make it farther in the voyage. They wanted to reach the harbor at Phoenix, and it's noted on the map, if you can see that star at the, at the kind of the northwest corner, that's where they were going, trying, they were trying to make that turn to go around. So let's see. However, when they weighed anchor and set sail in what they thought was a gentle wind, as it tells us in verse 13, it now becomes ugly. The words are tempestuous, a northeaster typhoon-like, or of hurricane force. So in order to not capsize, they let the ship be driven by the wind, and they actually come to the north of a small island, Kata, where they were afforded a little bit of shelter from the winds. And they were able to pull in the lifeboat that was attached behind the main ship, at that time, those ships, the lifeboat was trailed behind on a rope. Sounds an interesting concept to me, but I don't know that. So they had to pull that in, and then they took ropes and undergirded the ship to strengthen it against the waves, and they took down the sail. So you saw that picture of this ship. Can you imagine a wooden ship in hurricane-force winds? That's what they were facing. And they could have tried to outrun the storm, 
However, the result might have been what they feared most, of running aground on Sirtis, which was listed as the ship's graveyard on the northern African coast. So you see that little bit of coastline, the winds just drove them right into the coastline, and of course they crushed the ships. It's also noted they jettisoned some of the cargo to lighten the ship, as well as some of the tackle. The effect was the, to enable the ship to be just driven along by the wind and not capsize, and it, because of the less weight, it would ride higher in the water. Sounds all dramatic and dangerous, doesn't it? Can you imagine yourself being in that place, in that ship, with those winds? Said so it wasn't like one of our huge cruise liners that we get on today. It was a much smaller ship. And you were in the middle of the Mediterranean. Right now you're hovering near a little island. Can you imagine what all the people on board were thinking and feeling? And verse 20 tells us about the mindset of the passengers. It says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Drifting storm-tossed after nearly 14 days, and after all human effort had been expended, all hope was abandoned. Despair had taken over. They were seasick, and they had not eaten anything for days. The ship's owner, the centurion, and the sailors had no solution to save them. But there was a man who had been addressing the problem with the one who is all-powerful and all-knowing. And now Paul, the prisoner passenger, steps up and asserts himself once again to be the leader he is. So listen to Paul's words in verses 21 through 26. He said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart or keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong, and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart. Keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Now, Paul wasn't chiding them and saying they should have listened to him. He was just confirming that he had knowledge they didn't have. He, he was saying that his faith was not in their sailing abilities or in the weather, but his faith was in God, to whom he belonged and to whom he worshipped. God had once again given Paul assurance that his mission was still to go to Rome and appear before Caesar. Can't you hear his confident, calming voice as he spoke to the passengers in the midst of the storm? Can't you see his firm confidence in God and his promises? 
And then on the 14th night, just as Paul had predicted, the sailors suspected they were nearing land and they began to take soundings. And then in the text it says, and then we see the sailors praying for day to come. It's first mentioned that the sailors were even doing anything other than just trying to do their job. However, there were some who didn't believe Paul's words about no loss of life, and they tried to escape. But Paul saw them and reminded them that they had to stay together in order for all to be saved. And then in quiet confidence, Paul encouraged them and urged them all to eat and proceeded to give thanks for the food in the midst of all the sailors who were probably pagan sailors and the passengers. Once again, showing his confidence in the Lord. Again, just as Paul had predicted, the ship approached land. Although they didn't recognize the land, it was the island of Malta. The island of Malta was 475 miles from the island of Cotta, the distance they had traveled in the storm. It said the ship struck a reef, and while the front of the ship, the bow, was intact, the rear of the ship was being battered by the waves. We read the soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners in order to protect themselves, but once again the hand of God stepped in and the centurion protected the prisoners. Note what is said in verse 43. It says, The centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Now the island of Malta was actually on the main route from Myra to Rome. So in God's providence, he actually brought them back on course through this horrible storm. In Malta, we see that Paul was once again the center of attention, just as he had been on his missionary, many missionary journeys. And we see some events that occurred that were similar to some we had seen in the past, such as when the viper hung from Paul's hand. Remember, the islanders said he was a murderer. And when he shook it off and harmed, then he said, well, he must be a god. Sort of sounds familiar to some other past occurrences when people wanted to deify Paul. But then Paul began to minister to Publius' father and healed him of disease. And then many others, it said, came who needed healing. In writing this, Paul, Luke actually uses two different words for healed and cured. So I can imagine that Dr. Luke may have been involved in assisting and helping with these people. So this passage ends with the people of Malta honoring the shipmates by providing provisions for the rest of their journey to Rome. You know that Paul must have shared the gospel with these people, although there's no written evidence to support it. But we know that Paul was bold to speak of his faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus. Can you imagine the effect of Paul and Luke and Aristarchus being shipmates with the sailors and the other passengers on this long journey to Rome. It's noted several times that the centurion Julius was lenient with Paul. So there must have been respect for Paul. 
And you know that Paul shared his faith in the God to whom he belongs with those on the ship. 276 people. We don't have recorded the souls and lives changed as a result of that voyage. But we can only imagine the reactions of listening to Paul and seeing the evidence of his words and that all were brought to safety. Some of those people probably stayed in Rome. Some probably went on to other places. But they all had a story to tell of how they had been saved from certain disaster because of a Jewish man who proclaimed his Lord. And we know Paul had great passion to go to Rome. As he recorded in the book of Romans, he prayed that the way might be open for him to visit them. He longed to see them in order that he might strengthen them and that he and they might be mutually encouraged. Have you ever known someone who was having a hard time and you wanted to encourage them, but afterwards you were the one who was encouraged? That's how I imagine Paul the great encourager in the midst of chains. But how did he become this way? Remember at the beginning we talked about his imposed rest, his time in Caesarea? I'm sure Paul did not waste that time, but used it faithfully and prepared for his next stage of life. How would you prepare if you knew life was going to change drastically? Paul knew Jesus deeply and personally, calling himself a bondservant of Christ. And the finished work of, at the cross Jesus did, Paul rested in that work. Paul accepted by faith the grace and mercy freely offered by Jesus. So how can we prepare or take advantage of resting in Jesus? There are some disciplines we can put into practice to help us realize our rest we have in Jesus. And I've taken some examples actually in a devotional today in the Word, if you get that from Moody um, Bible. And it's actually just the February 2016 version. Just happened to have all of these as I was preparing. So I've taken some of these to, that spoke to me about rest. So they are listed on your outline. Disciplines of rest. The first is solitude. Psalm 62, 1 says, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. The practice of solitude places us in an environment that enables us to focus our attention on God exclusively. Now this practice doesn't have to be elaborate. We don't have to have a cave or a deserted island. But what we have to have is the discipline to turn off the TV, the computer, the phones, turn off outside stimuli, find a favorite place in your house, or as the weather's getting warmer, maybe outside. But you just need aloneness with God. doesn't have to be long periods of time. If you start out with 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you may have to alter your daily routine to do this, but you just need that aloneness with God. Now, I know for all you moms with young kids, it can be difficult because I remember those days when you can't even go to the bathroom without a child at the door. But a few minutes alone with God. The next one is silence. 
46.10 says, Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Obviously, the discipline of silence is a natural companion to solitude. It's not a natural state. It's the practice of selective listening. When we pursue rest through silence, we discover how much we use sound to shield ourselves, both from our own thoughts and even from God himself. That's kind of a profound thought. I like that. We use sound to shield ourselves from our own thoughts and even from God. The command in Psalm 46.10 calls God's people to silence and to listen to God in the face of great turmoil. The psalm reminds us that God is our refuge and our protector. When we practice silence, we position ourselves to listen carefully to God. We quiet ourselves so we're in a listening mode. We turn away from the constant chatter of the world in order to grasp the mysterious ways God speaks to us when we turn our attention to him. And obviously, one of the disciplines is prayer. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Oswald Chambers points out that we tend to use prayer as a last resort rather than our first line of defense. Prayer is a mode of rest and waiting. Prayer is personal. Keep in mind that you're talking to God and not at him. He is your loving Father who is in heaven, inviting you into his presence and caring about all the needs of your heart. The next discipline is faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, We live by faith, not by sight. The Bible defines faith as trust. To have faith in God is to trust him. Psalm 91 describes the rest a faithful person has in God. Not what the believer must do, but what God does for the person who trusts in him. Faith is not an attempt to back God into a corner and force him to do what you want him to do. It's quiet reliance on God, his methods, his timing. To live by faith is to take God at his word and let his promises shape our actions. To live by faith is to rely on Jesus for righteousness, his power for daily living, trust in his promises for the future, no matter the circumstances. Can't you see that Paul was completely trustful and full of faith in his Lord Jesus? And then we have hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, common usage today equates hope with wishful thinking. But biblical hope is stronger and more certain because it depends on the power of God, who is the focus of our hope. This hope kept Paul from being shaken by circumstances. For Paul, hope meant the certainty of resurrection and the redemption of all creation. Hope is a discipline because we choose to take God at his word. 
This kind of hope is not a mere act of will, but it's strengthened by the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us. These are all good disciplines to practice. And in preparing for today, the disciplines that reminded me most of Paul were, of course, faith and hope. And everything he did, Paul exuded faith in Jesus Christ and hope because of the resurrection. How many times did he repeat that? I'm on trial today because of the resurrection. Paul rested on God's promises and he wasn't fearful of the future or of men. Paul wanted to go to Rome. He longed to see the people in Rome. But I don't imagine he envisioned the way it was going to turn out. However, he trusted his Lord Jesus in every circumstance. It's important to incorporate disciplines such as these in your life, to incorporate rest and solitude, to be sure of your faith, confident in your trust in God, so that whatever Whenever the storms may come, we're prepared to rest in God. You know, I'm speaking as much to myself as I am to you because I constantly need reminded to go back and practice disciplines. You know, we don't know when there might be times of illness within our families, financial difficulties, wayward children, marriages crumbling, or loss of a loved one but we need to be prepared by resting in God. So may we learn to use these disciplines to strengthen our faith and our hope in God so that whatever the circumstance we may be in, we too, like Paul, can say, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words that you've given us this morning. Thank you for your spirit who ministers to us. I just pray now as we go to our groups that the discussion will be rich and sweet and honoring to you. May everything we do bring you glory. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. You're dismissed.